Okay, Pasa, Mufasa, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. Today, we've got none other than Willie Myco in the house. About 90% of my cultivation efforts are exotic mushrooms. So I travel the world and I find all these really cool mushrooms that aren't on the market that I bring back and I try to cultivate, you know, see how we cultivate them. What's the proper way to cultivate them so that everybody can cultivate them at home. And about 10% of my grow is Cubensis. What an absolute blessing. I feel tremendously fortunate to have the opportunity to host this dialogue about Willie Myko's work and legacy and to dive into some of the ins and the outs of the burgeoning psilocybin mushroom industry. Willie is a singular figure in this space and it's an honor to host him on the podcast. So without further ado, let's hear what Willie Myko has to say. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Willie Maiko in the house. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. It's an honor to host you. How are things in your corner of the Mycoverse today, Willie? Great, brother. Thank you for having me. Everything's going good, man. My life is great. You know, it couldn't be better, and I'm happy to be here with you, man. So I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about some great things. So I'm here. I'm here for the ride, brother. Let's do it. Let's do it. That makes two of us. So you've been a very prolific presence as far as being public facing while retaining quite a bit of anonymity, which is a tough trick to pull off. And you've done it very well. You've been very active and educating people about how to grow mushrooms, about more of the nuances and the dynamics of this evolving industry and of the community. And I'm super curious because I have no frame of reference. How did you get started with Willie Myco? Like what were some of the first key experiences that happened that led you to become public facing and to start educating people and to build your brand? So my origin story goes way back, but pretty much how Willie Michael was born. My name's Willie. So it, it just came from that. But I started because I was a big contributor from a young age to some of the message boards like Shroomery and Mycotopia and things like that. I would write up texts and help people and just watching and seeing other people in them communities, how they would treat new cultivators or people trying to come into this. It was almost like some people were accepted and some weren't and you know they they treated some people really bad just asking really simple questions so i just said you know what i'm done writing these texts i'm done contributing to these platforms i'm just going to start shooting simple videos to answer simple questions and walk people through it right because not everybody can learn the same exact way where you know some people are very book smart. They could read something and get it. Some people are visual learners. It takes people a couple times to get things. They have to see somebody do it and walk them through it to be able to understand it. And I think that there's no issue with that. And I just started recording videos. It was nothing serious. I was actually working for a very large pharmaceutical company at the time and just doing videos for fun on the side. And I left for about six months. I recorded a couple videos. I came back and I seen that it had just become huge. Rumors started, and we could get into that later, that I had died. And that's why I left. And th that's not true. I'm alive. But, you know, people said that I had passed away in a car accident and this and that. And, you know, just crazy internet stuff. I came back and I seen that it had really started to snowball and become something bigger. And around the same time that happened, 
I ended up leaving my job at this pharmaceutical company. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to give it 100% and I'm going to, you know, just 100% devote myself to this. And it worked. It just, it took off. What are some of the changes you've noticed in the way the community treats each other and the way the Myco community is responding to the mainstreaming of mushrooms? Because that's what's happening, right? It's getting uh, on the cover of magazines. It's getting primetime coverage. And I myself am someone who has been actively involved in psychedelic experimentation going back about 15 years, but I wasn't part of these micro communities, right? I lived in San Francisco, so I had access to bulk grows and things like that. And I always had someone who was better than me growing and I just buy a QP at a time or whatever. But I've noticed just in the last few years, like people who would never talk about mushrooms before are starting to get really interested in them. So what are some of the changes that you've noticed over the time that you've been involved in this game? I started when I was about 13 years old, 13, 14 years old. I was just going into high school. You know, my mom was the one that actually started to tell me about her psychedelic experiences back in the 70s and the 80s. And it really sparked this this fire inside me and, and just immediately grabbed my attention. And it was like, I was hooked right away. It was like something that was already there. And I found something that intrigued me so much. So I started, you know, at the time, um, the message boards were there already, but I was grabbing every book I could possibly find, you know, scouring the internet, started doing, you know, small little BRF grows using the psilocybin handbook and things like that. You know, the changes that I've seen, it, it, it's kind of fractured the community. You got the old school guys that, you know, came before us that never wanted it to change. They, they wanted it black market, you know, underground, how it was, they don't want it to, to be out in the open. And then you got people like me, and that's where a lot of the, the negativity comes from that, that was like, no, we're going to bring this to the front and we're going to make sure it's accessible to everybody. And to be honest, before me, there was nobody putting videos online. Nobody was putting videos out on this scale. So, you know, it was kind of like, just just looked at like I can't believe this person's doing something like that because they never wanted it to change but now that's become what it is right now everything is it, it's so out there so you'll, you'll see that division you'll see the the old school guys that don't want it to change and want it to stay underground and then you'll see the people that want progression and want it to be available to everybody at their fingertips and that's kind of where I fall yeah I, I, I never lost the sight of what this community started as or what, what its roots are, its background. I, I get it. But like, you know, we're living in a 21st century. Everything's digital. Everything's video and streams. And now that's how the information gets out there. It just is what it is. But pretty much that's, that's what I've seen. It, it's just come come a long way the message boards and stuff they're still there and they're a great source of information like and data and history of how this has progressed but at the end of the day they're they're really obsolete they don't work anymore nobody's gonna go sit there and write up a huge tag and read these tags and filter through comments now now people just want they consume videos they consume tutorials through video or whatever and that's how the information gets out there now so on the educational side that's where i've seen things go as far as the community i think we're progressing in a good way i hate seeing the fractured sets of people like you know you know and in some of the turmoil but in essence we're all coming together for one cause and that's to 
move towards making this medicine available to everybody that could possibly need this medicine and remove that stigma. We don't want that stigma there no more. You know, we, we grew up with that stigma that psychedelics are bad. You know, it's going to fuck you up and it's going to mush your brain and all this stuff. And we want to remove that stigma. And I feel like we've done a really good job of that because now we're seeing celebrities talk about it. We're seeing it on mainstream media and it's becoming more socially accepted to where this is a positive thing. Years ago, whenever psychedelics were talked, it was talked about in a bad light. It was talked about as a bad thing. Now, when we see people talking about it, we're seeing them talk about really good things about it. You know, how people are healing from it and how it's curing people and how it's making people live a much more positive life. And it's being shown in a more positive space than it was, you know, even three, four years ago. And, you know, it's so important, I think, that we're having these face-to-face conferences in a lot of ways, because for so long, so much of this has been underground, but just in the last year to two years, all of these conferences and meetups have popped up. And I think that personal connection opportunity is so key. It's so important to the development of this community. And case in point, there are so many people on the Instagram community and on TikTok and on, you know, these online communities who are anonymous. And I respect that people want to remain anonymous. But of course, there's always going to be an angle of kind of like dissatisfaction and jealousy and things like that that can breed when there's no transparency as my opinion and perspective. So like I noticed that when there's these in-person conferences, you really have a chance to talk to people face to face and like, you know, be able to put a, a, even if you're not showing the whole face, I totally respect this, right? I understand that people are taking or incurring more risk than others, but like just to be able to have that human connection is something that I think we really need as a society, not just with psychedelics, but like talking about politics, you know, it's so easy for people to kind of hide behind the keyboard. And that's something that I personally really hope that like we can see more people resolving disputes and things like that directly. And like, even if it's not, you know, in person, if you can just take the time to actually talk to someone as opposed to like jumping on these comment threads, which is something that, you know, my background is in media production. And I've just noticed like how, you know, these comment threads can get really toxic and nobody wants that. Like, I don't think anybody in the right mind who's involved with cultivating mushrooms and spreading mushrooms really thinks that's a good thing. But we're at a point sort of as a community, as a culture where we need to learn better ways to communicate. And I personally think that those conferences are a great way to do it, right? Get divergent perspectives up on the stage. Like you want people to have differing opinions, but you also, we want people to learn how to communicate and kind of bridge that gap and either agree to disagree or be able to communicate uh, diplomatically is something that I'm hope, hoping to bring to the space myself is like a measure of diplomacy. Even if you disagree with someone that we can be adults and we can treat this like the adults that we are. So that's just my two cents I wanted to add to it. So. I'm super curious too, since we're talking about cultivation and strains and this and that, like what are some of the genetics that you're currently working with that have got you really excited? So the way that I cultivate about 90% of my cultivation efforts are exotic mushrooms. So I travel the world and I find all these really cool mushrooms that aren't on the market that I bring back and I try to cultivate and try to make them, you know, see how we cultivate them. What's the proper way to cultivate them so that everybody could cultivate them at home. And about 10% of my grow is Cubensis. So right now, some of the really cool mushrooms I'm working with is like uh, Psilocybe uh, Neozalapensis, Psilocybe Gilartensis, which are, you know, really unique mushrooms, really unique 
alkaloid profiles. So I'm excited to see what they hold for medicinal use and for spiritual sacrament use or tools. Them are two mushrooms that I'm, I'm really focused on right now. So the, the Neozella pensis I have come from Mexico and the, the Psilocybe gilartensis come from Puerto Rico. And those are the two mushrooms that I'm heavily cultivating right now and trying to stabilize. And we almost have Psilocybe gilartensis 100% stabilized to where the spores will be able to be released. I already have a video series showing how to grow them from scratch. Pretty soon, everybody will be able to have their hands on something they've never had their hands on and they'll be able to cultivate it. And that's one of the reasons why I travel around the world finding these mushrooms. We also have another Psilocybe that is completely unidentified. We've uh, sequenced it, no records found on this mushroom. We know it's a psilocybe, but there's no record showing what type of psilocybe it is. So it's very possible that we actually found a new type of psilocybe in Costa Rica. And the best part about it was I actually documented us finding it. So I'm really excited about that. And that's another mushroom that right now we're currently cultivating. It's been a lot tougher than some of the other mushrooms that we've cultivated in the past, but we're, we're sure we'll get there. We got plenty of material and I'm sure we'll be able to cultivate it. It's another really cool mushroom with a really high alkaloid uh, profile. So we've been able to test and this thing is shooting up like, you know, three to 4% psilocybin, which is absolutely astronomical when it comes to potency on that scale. So, it's exciting. So that's some of the genetics I'm working with. There's a lot of really cool genetics out there. You know, there's a, a, a lot of bickering about genetics in the community, especially when it comes to hybridization and things like that. But really at the end of the day, I'm excited because the more people that are involved, the more types of cool things we're going to see. And I, my genetic library alone has over 150 different active species. So that's just mushrooms that contain active alkaloids. And, you know, it's growing all the time. I'm getting sent samples from all around the world of different types of mushrooms. So it, it's a lot of fun and I look forward to it. It's what keeps me going. It's the, it's the interest. It's the drive. You know, I want to grow something that nobody's ever grown before indoors. That way I could replicate it and give it out to people and they could continue to do the same thing. So that's a lot of the stuff that I'm working on right now is a lot of exotics that I find on my journeys or that somebody else has found and has sent to me. Amazing. That's one of my favorite things to follow when people are doing that. I was following Myco Cowboy, if you're familiar with their work, but they went and found some rhino dung exotics, I believe, over in Nepal, and they were just in Cuba. And I love to travel. So that's something, you know, I've come across mushrooms around the world, but I've never so far had that skill set of being able to stabilize them. And, you know, I've occasionally taken spore prints and this and that, but that's something that gets me personally excited. So you just touched on psilocybin potency testing a little bit, and that's a huge conversation right now right? There was the psilocybin cup that Oakland Hyphae ran. I believe there's some new cups that are coming up that competitors are running. And it seems like a number of people are getting involved with opening their own labs or getting, you know, starting to push this because for the last couple of years, it really wasn't a thing or certainly not as widespread as it is now. But now it's almost becoming a standard where if you're a cultivator, you want to know what those alkaloid profiles are and you want to know about, you know, what percentage your psilocybin is testing at. So I'm curious, when did you first start testing Willie Myco strains and start testing your genetics? And is there, what can you tell us about that process just as far as what you've learned so far about psilocybin potency testing and its place in the community and in the industry that's developing? Yeah, so 
I, I've been doing HPLC testing, so that's the way that we test. It's um, it's it's high pressure or high performance liquid chromiograph. It depends on who you talk to. They'll call it one of the other things. But pretty much the reason why we're seeing it so readily available now is because the equipment over the years has become cheaper. You know, when HPLC first became public and available to people to purchase and things like that, it was very, very expensive. So some of the only HPLCs you've seen were at big labs or at universities. But now that we're seeing, we could go on eBay and pick up an Align HPLC for, you know, $3,000 and maybe put a little bit of work into it. Now it's becoming more accessible to people. Another thing is the training behind it. It's not as just as easy as purchasing an HPLC and using it. You actually have to know what you're doing. I actually, so when I went to school for my master's, I went to school for organic drug synthesis and I did a lot of HPLC testing, but with, with different things, not, not with psilocybin or, or, you know, active mushrooms, things like that. But it's the same thing. But at the end of the day, you really need to know what you're doing and you're going to get false test um and that that's one of the problems i see with people just grabbing them and starting to offer testing to the general market is you need to be able to know what you're doing because if not the testing's not going to be accurate and that's going to be very hurtful to the entire community so what we're seeing is some of the more legit companies like oakland hyphae a couple others they're actually partnering up and doing secondary testing so that one lab will test get the results and then they'll send the sample to the other lab that they're working with and match the two tests up together to make sure it's accurate, which I think is a, is a great thing because then we could get a much more accurate reading. Now with the whole thing of HPLC, just everybody wants to test and I think that's gonna become the standard, it, just like it is with cannabis, where every time we, we go to buy cannabis or we go to a dispensary or whatever, we want to know what the cannabinoid profile is. We want to know what it's testing at, what type of terpenes it has. We want to know everything about that, that flower before we actually consume it. It's going to be the same thing with mushrooms. We're going to want to know exactly how much psilocybin's there, how much psilocin, baocysin, norbaocysin, aruginacin, whatever type of alkaloids that are in that mushroom. We're going to want to know what's in it. And, you know, that's going to be the standard, especially if we're going to be overlooked by, you know, local and federal governments, they're going to want testing done. They're going to want, you know, things being looked at for mold and pesticides and things like that. And that's just what it is. That's how we keep it safe. Back in the black market and stuff like that, you know, none of that matters. But now I've seen because we have a lot of these underground like flea markets or, or, or meetups where people will go and it's underground and you, they'll have vendor boots and you can go and you can buy your mushrooms or your DMT or this or that. Now I'm seeing people with their mushrooms literally attach the HPLC testing to the mushrooms. So you can look at the mushrooms and see the test and you actually know what you're buying. So even the black market is starting to adapt this HPLC testing and embrace it because the higher the mushrooms are testing, the higher chance the mushrooms are probably going to sell a lot faster and that they're going to sell for a much more money than, you know, something that isn't. And right now, that's a really big problem in the community as well is mushrooms are so cheap. You know, people, are, especially out west in Oregon and northern California, they're saying that pounds of mushrooms are going for 200 to 350 dollars a pound, which is very, very sad for the cultivator, um, you know, and. The problem with that is we, we're, we're divided 
across the community. And we all need to come together to set a price and say, this is what the price is. We're all going to stick to that. And this is what the market value should be for this. Whereas right now, what it is, is if Dennis is going to give it to you for five and Willie's going to give it to you for four and Reggie's going to give it to you for three, you're going to go with Reggie because Reggie's giving it to you for three. So you're all just undercutting each other and you're really driving down the price of these medicines that a lot of people with, you know, great knowledge and time and expertise dumped into them and they're just being undervalued. And I, I see that as a very sad thing. I, I don't think that's a positive thing for the community at all. Sure. And as far as the medicalization model goes, that's something that is causing a lot of controversy too, right? Is you have these vertically integrated companies, right? Basically pharmaceutical companies to some extent coming in who know how to run business. And, you know, they're in a lot of cases, they have novel drug development pipelines. And I've hosted some of these people on the podcast where they're trying to create psilocybin analogs and, you know, pro, pro drugs, right? Like Myco 001 or Myco 002. And I'm just... I think a lot of people are curious as we sort of approach this model of decriminalization that's happening. But really, I think the end game for a lot of people is to create an above board legitimate industry around this and how that unfolds. There's so many different stakeholders. You just mentioned there's the black market. There's the OGs who want it to go a certain way. Right. There's other people who are kind of in the middle who see some value to both sides. There's other people who, you know, only want you to be able to go down to the pharmacist or, or what have you or a clinic like in Oregon. Right. My understanding is the rollout in Oregon, which will kind of be the flagship for the rest of us to see a legal psilocybin mushroom industry in the United States. Like you're going to have to go to a licensed center and you're going to have to have a manufacturer's license. Those are a couple of the stipulations that opens up the door to these multinational companies who know how to play the game, right? Like I've had a few of them on the podcast too, and I'm doing my due diligence to get a lot of perspectives and a lot of different people. So I'm just curious because you have a background working in pharmaceuticals and you have a master's degree and this and that, like what are your takes on the unfolding of this industry as it relates to the medicalized model? Do you think that the underground cultivator or the small scale cultivator and the medicalized model can exist concurrently in a regulated industry or you know one perspective i've heard is that it's probably going to be these big companies and the people who have the money to buy the licenses who are going to be the first ones who are sort of uh, starting off and kicking off and then hopefully the door opens for the small farmers kind of like what we saw or what we are seeing with cannabis is my understanding that a lot of small hold farms are getting crushed right now because you know the the market's tanked and the prices for pounds are down so i would just love to get a little bit of perspective since you have that background about where the small scale cultivator the mid-scale cultivator fits in to this emerging decriminalized and potentially legalized psilocybin mushroom industry yeah so right now if we don't get our shit together as a community these companies are gonna completely crush us they're gonna obliterate, like we're done. And the reason is they have the connections. It's not even so much about the money. It's the connections that they have to government. They donate millions and millions of dollars to campaigns and they eat breakfast and play golf and you know, marry into families. We're done. And that's really what it is. If it goes down uh, where you need a medical license, where it's not gonna be an open market, then we're just gonna be absolutely crushed. And the way 
how things work because all right so when i worked for the pharmaceutical company i actually worked in experimental medications that's where i actually worked in it was a great job but i've seen a lot of things that they do and the money that they dump into developing new medications and if they start to develop more stable synthetic things like a synthetic psilocybin or synthetic psilocin where they can control the dosage and increase the shelf life and you're getting the same experience, they're going to completely wipe us out because they don't even need the mushrooms for that. They, they, they literally could create this from the ground up. And they did this with so many other medications. The way I would like to see the market go is just like this in, in, in a perfect place. This is what I would like to see. I would like to see the dispensary owners have to purchase from the cultivators, build those relationships when the cult, you know, the dispensary could tell the cultivator, Hey, this is the type of, you know, substrains I want or the species I want or whatever bring this to me and they're paying them fair market value for it, whatever the market value is at that time. And you know, everybody's eating. So the cultivators that are cultivating good product could sell to the dispensaries at a, at a decent price. The dispensaries are then going to sell to, you know, the people, the end user. And I think that would, in, in a perfect world, that would be the best case scenario because you're not cutting anybody out, but we know it's probably not going to work like that, right? I'm not naive. I'm not stupid. It's going to go to the people that have the money to fund the license. Now, some people will be perfectly fine with this and others are just going to completely get wiped out and have to resort back to the black market. But just like with legalization of cannabis now, the, you know, the black market's kind of dead with cannabis. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's so cheap to even buy cannabis right now like you know i remember you know uh, a pound of really good cannabis was upwards of you know two to three thousand dollars now you could buy some of the best stuff on the market top shelf for six seven hundred bucks you know like it it really is just what it is the market's completely changed and that's how it is with, with mushrooms right now you know and that's that's upsetting but yeah these pharmaceutical companies will completely wipe us out if we don't get it together right now and stand together and actually fight for what we want to see in this emerging legal market. Not that they're this big evil corporations or anything like that. It's just that, you know, at the end of the day, they don't care about helping people like we do. They care about turning a profit or an ROI, you know, return on investment. And that's, that's really all they care about. They want to cut out their piece of the market secure it and profit off it. Whereas us, we want to grow these medications to help people and, and continue on the culture and the, the legacy of these medicines. It's not the same with these companies. So we really do need to come together so that this doesn't go down that path. But it's going to be a very tough day because if you're a, a big conglomerate and you are stepping into a market you know nothing about, but you want to take a big portion of that market. What is the first thing you do? The first thing you do is you divide the market. You, you make the market fight between each other. So while they're over here arguing between each other, the people that really matter in this space, you're saying, excuse me, excuse me. And you're just going around to the front and you're taking your piece of the market. And by the time they're all done over here, bickering and arguing about stuff that doesn't matter, they've already set up shop up front and you're done. And that's really what's going to end up happening if we don't get our shit together right now. I've been able to have these conversations with, you know, C-level CEOs, CFOs for some of these large companies. 
And the more conversations I've had, the more I realize like they have their shit together. So I've been commenting on this and writing about it. And some people have conflated that with me supporting saying like, this is what I want to see happen. I just think it's important that we recognize like we have to be grounded in reality when we take action that like we're competing against people who have lobbying power. We're competing against, in some cases, Canadian mining companies. You know, there are Canadian mining companies who have joined forces by doing reverse takeovers and uh, working with small psychedelics companies. And, you know, I've hosted a few of them. The more you learn about it, the more you realize that when the quote little people or like the, you know, the, the us little folk start to infight and things like that, these people, you know, we stand very little chance of presenting a meaningful argument against them when they're already, you know, in Senator Weiner's office in California and this and that and the other. Right. So like, I think that's where the media game comes in is like learning how to play that game a little bit and learning sort of how to organize. I do want to shout out, uh, shout out Bay Staters. They're based over in Massachusetts and they've been successful at decriminalizing mushrooms in four cities, entirely grassroots. And I think they're a great example of, you know, some little folk that have their shit together that have been able to make meaningful change. And I think, you know, there's all, all kinds of perspectives people have on decrim, but like decrim has been successful in multiple cities in Michigan. They just got psychedelics decriminalized in San Francisco. Now, one thing that I'm aware of though, is they're not decriminalized federally. So that's a conversation that's happening too. It's like, for example, with cannabis, there were people like in Michigan all over who were running perfectly legitimate grows for Michigan and they still got popped by the feds. So I just think that there's a lot of things that we have to keep in mind and we can't be naive and it, it's almost it's basically time to start playing hardball and start to like put the best people we have in our community forward who can potentially at least present a valid argument against some of the these pressures that are coming from the top down and these people who know how to play the game already so that's one thing that i just wanted to mention on there so since you've been around so long surely you've learned a lot from this game you've learned a lot and you've made a lot of mistakes nobody gets to where you are or gets ahead without having made some mistakes and learning how to overcome those right i'm curious if you were to talk to someone who's like 19 20 years old they're gifted they're intelligent they have the resources they want to get into this developing industry what would you tell them? Where, where would you suggest is a good place to start focusing your time and energy if you're really serious about getting involved in the burgeoning psychedelics industry and the psilocybin mushroom industry that's happening? What I would, yeah, I've made tons of mistakes, you know, but um, because I didn't have nobody to speak to that's done this before me, now everybody that comes up, you know the names, you know, Philly Golden Teacher or, or Magic Michael or this person or that person they all come to i speak to all of them and i tell them exactly you know the trials and tribulations i went through what i learned and i teach it to them and share it with them so that they don't make those same mistakes that i did um and i tell everybody that comes to me you know first things first um there, there's three things you, you really need to focus on and one is the community the other is your character and the third is the quality Right. So like those three things, you have to make sure they're, they're all in place first. If you really do care about this community and you want to contribute and give it something good and leave a mark on this community in a positive way, then you're good. Your character, the person you are from on screen when you're filming or, or doing your thing to off screen, you have to be the same person through and through. Um, and the third is the quality of what you're going to contribute. Um, and if you have all three of those things in place, you're, you're going to do well. 
um, because the community sees through it. Um, you know, if you come out and you're not giving accurate information or your, your heart's not in it, you're not putting the community first, then, you know, the community's going to see through it and they're, they're just going to turn away from it because they want people to represent the community that actually represent what the community is. And, and that's what it is. The biggest mistake I think I made was thinking that everybody felt the same way as me. I came into this thinking everybody was about love and about the medicine and about education and, you know, teaching the next generation so that this information doesn't die with us. And I learned very fast that there's, there's a good group of people that don't care about that. And I think that was the biggest mistake I made and where I created the most waves because my mindset was just different. Another thing too is thinking that these companies like Instagram and YouTube and TikTok, that they're your friends. They're not your fucking friends. They don't care about you. They'll shut your page down in two seconds and don't give a fuck if you starve to death. You're only good to them for clicks and views. And as soon as your clicks and views might create them some type of liability, you're, you're done. And you know, that's another thing too. I thought I'm working hand in hand with these companies. I'm creating content. They're hosting my content. We're helping each other. No, nah, they don't give a shit. They don't give a shit because there's a hundred other people that, that get way more views and way more clicks than you do, um, that do safe things supposedly that could generate a lot more money than you. And, and really that's what it all comes down to. You know, that's probably been my biggest thing. And, and also too, I watched some of my old videos and I cringe so hard because I was filming on an iPad and my audio is horrible, but that's, that's what I had to work with, you know? And I didn't really know what I was doing. And um, now I have an amazing team around me, you know, managers and an assistant and, and you know, just amazing people that that make my dreams come true like i said i want to do something we get in motion we come up with a game plan and we execute and that's another thing too a lot of new people i, I tell them get a good team around you get get good people that want to see you win that have the same vision as you have like if you're out there to change the world and make this community a better place make sure every person that's working with you believes in that same thing because if you guys are all thinking that you just want to get something else out of this community, it's not going to work. And, um, you know, I've had issues with, with team members in the past and, you know, because their heart wasn't in it and my heart's always in it, it, it creates an issue. That's, that's some of the things like, yeah, there, there, there's big things. And now if you want to get into this space of, of legalized psychedelics and you want to start making money in this community um, on the, the legal side with license and things like that, I, I would say, number one, know your laws. Um, you might have to relocate to a state that is more ahead of the curve. So be prepared to uproot your family or your, your team or whatever and go to a state that's going to give you those opportunities. Because I'm telling you right now, if you want to come to Massachusetts or California, you might be fine. If you want to stay in Tennessee, you're probably fucking never going to get anywhere with, with anything. You know, so like you might have to switch your location. So you have to be realistic about that. And also start building up your funds now because it's not going to be cheap. It's not, you know, these, these licensing fees and, and the paperwork fees and, and everything associated with becoming legal and doing this on a legal scale is not going to be cheap. So you have to have the funds, you have to have investors, whatever the case may be to, to be able to push this forward. So 
those are three things that you might want to consider. Now, if you just want to be an educator, you want to be uh, somebody or just somebody in media in general, have a great personality and, and, you know, come into this with something that, yeah, just come into this with something you could give. Whether that's, you know, talking about real subjects, but bringing some humor to it, or it's, it's talking about some real stuff and, and really being, you know, uh, an advocate for this community and having a voice that people could relate to, you could do it, but, but have something to contribute. Don't just take, cause a lot of people come into this community and they think I'll just bullshit and I'll take, 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 and it's all going to work out. And then you never hear from those people again. So, so really come into this with something to give. And then maybe eventually you'll be able to take a little bit back as well. Awesome. Love it. And that's partially why I've been doubling down on the media. You know, that's what my degree is in. That's my wife and I have a sole proprietorship and I've been long involved as a psychonaut and, you know, macrodosing and this and that going back to my college days and all through my professional life. And the opportunity came up, you know, about two years ago to interview a few people who I knew that were in the space who were journalists and therapists. And it just sort of clicked with me where I was like, I can go public facing with this because information is not currently illegal to be able to talk about this stuff. But we need to have these conversations, you know, and now there's all these conferences popping up, right? This is the podcast has been a networking racket, you know, to be able to connect with people and, and talk. And, you know, I, I love it when people listen to the podcast, will buy products from other people who have been on the podcast, you know, it's, it's something that's really awesome. It feels more like a community than something that's anonymous, you know? So one question, when I was at the California Psychedelic Conference that Oakland Hyphe presented, I got to moderate a panel called The Future of Business and Psychedelics was the name of the panel. And one of the questions that I threw out there, I heard while I was at Meet Delic in Las Vegas last year, which was probably the first big, like, quote, psychedelic industry conference I went to. And there were a bunch of venture capitalists on stage, right? There were VCs up there and someone threw out the question saying, if you had $250,000, so let's just stick with that number because there are a lot of people who are interested in getting in the space who have a little bit of capital, right? If you had $250,000 to plug into this developing psychedelic space, we could call it the whole space, but you know, mushrooms too, for purposes of this podcast, where would you personally want to park that money? What, what would be worth investing in? At, you know, for example, uh, I, there's a VC that I'm aware of who is very adamant that people should not be investing in companies that are developing new novel drugs because his opinion is that for these new novel drugs to outperform mushrooms, they'd have to be significantly better. They'd have to be like 10x better than mushrooms. Mushrooms are already pretty great, right? There's probably gonna be some caveats where you know some companies wanna uh, engineer an experience where it's not so trippy or not so quote uncomfortable, which I personally disagree with. But um, his, his take is like, you should not be investing in novel drug development because so many companies are doing it and mushrooms are already amazing. And these natural chemical DMT is already amazing. So why are you going to go invent a DMT analog? So I'm just curious if you had that money, you had some capital, where would you recommend or where would you park $250,000? Me personally, I didn't, this is just me personally, I would invest it on the production side, you know, su supplying whatever it may be, developing a new product, but not so much a synthetic or, or, you know, something that could replace mushrooms. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, developing something that's going to hit the market. That's going to be good. So we're seeing a lot of edibles, different types of, you know, gummies, and we're seeing different types of candies or different types of drinks, things like that. That's where I would invest my money. I would either invest it on developing a new product that is going to be a staple 
in the community or on the production side of it. That's where I see. I've me personally, I've owned two dispensaries, well, par- partial ownership and huge dispensaries. I didn't like the retail side. I didn't like the way it operated. I didn't like all the different things that come along with the retail side of it. But the side that I did like was the product side of it. I, I liked you know, cultivating new products and testing out new products and searching out new products. And that that was something that I really enjoyed. That was the enjoyable part of the business. The, the other part of the business, the retail side of it, you have to be built for that. And I don't think everybody's built for that. I don't think they understand what they're getting themselves into. And also realize too, that once more and more dispensaries, maybe if you got into dispensaries when it first became legal, you might've made a killing. But when more and more dispensaries pop up, like now you could go to Oakland or any other place and there's a dispensary on every corner, you're barely surviving. You know, you're, you're not really, you, people think that they're, they're going to make a millions and millions of dollars and, and run off into the sunset. And that's not the case. And I see the same thing with, with mushrooms. So getting into the retail side, I, I think keeping retail small and, and only issuing so many licenses per area is the proper way to go, but also leave a lot of room for cultivators and people on the production side to be able to supply these outlets that will then sell it to the the end user you know they it, it creates a, a a really competitive market um it, it pushes cultivators to do better and be better and, and develop a better product because they never know what the other cultivators in the area are developing and you know it's just going to push the quality of the product up so much higher so me personally two hundred and fifty thousand, it's going into production or it's going into developing a, a, a new product that a lot of people will like like one product and i don't care i'll say it right now i'll, I'll let let the cat out the bag but pretty much one of the new products i've seen on the market that i got offered to to buy into or and to be a part of is a new sublingual microdose you pretty much just put it on your tongue it's a little film it dissolves and you get your microdose but they also could put a full dose in there as well it tastes like strawberry or it tastes like blueberry and it, it's just a really cool thing and it has really cool prints on it like little crazy faces and stars and all different types of things and you know you open up the the little thing you pull out your little sheet you put it on your tongue and it dissolves in seconds and you know your experience could start or you get your microdose and these are the types of products that we're going to see hit the market uh if you want there's a gentleman by the name of todd shapiro um you might have heard him he owns red light holland so if if you if if you reach out you know him with his microdosing kits you know the 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 red light holland trough microdose kits and you you'll see how they have things laid out the packaging the way everything is it hits the eye good they got their own refrigerators now so at outlets wherever you could purchase these kits at you'll see the the red light holland microdose kit right there i microdose and you could grab your kit and have your microdose things like that that's where i would see the money going the furthest if you think you have two hundred and fifty thousand and you're going to start a dispensary and a retail side of it you might be shooting for the stars because it's going to cost a lot more than that me like i said with the dispensary side sometimes it could take a couple million to get a dispensary up and running that's like you pay for your licensing but then you also need to purchase or lease your building and this is what i've seen with that space is one you know there's certain requirements to where your dispensary could be it can't be 
so many feet within a school or a boys and girls club or a park or this or that. But then also, if you don't own that building and you're going to lease it out, as soon as the landlord finds out that you're going to put a dispensary there, the rent automatically jumps up two to three times what he was asking. And that's what's going to happen with mushrooms. I mean, this happened so many times. We found the perfect location. We were going to lock in a five-year lease. And, you know, they were going to charge us $10,000 a month. And as soon as they found out that we was putting a cannabis dispensary there, it went from $10,000 to $25,000 a month. You know, and they were only going to give us a one-year lease and then renegotiate at the end of the year. So it's these type of things getting into the retail side that's going to make you turn away from it and be like, I don't want nothing to do with that. But stick where you love, stick with the production, product development. That That's personally where I would put my funds at and feel the best about it. Even if I lose all my money, at least I put it into something I care about and that I love. And, you know, I'll be able to try my best at it. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Wonderful. Thank you. I couldn't have said it any better myself. And another sentiment that I've heard, you know, throughout this conversation about where to invest in this space is this idea of picks and shovels of back in the day when everybody was trying to go hit the gold rush. And, you know, some people don't like this comparison, but the comparison often gets made about the psychedelic gold rush. And it's this idea that Levi Strauss and Levi's jeans is the one who made all the money, the person who was selling the picks and shovels, not necessarily the miners out in the hills. So take from that what you will. But one thing I like to do is like hear perspectives and then kind of repackage them and integrate them into the broader conversation. And that's a perspective I've heard from a number of people that I respect that makes sense. And is that is grounded in reality. So we're kind of hitting the sweet spot right now. But before we let you go today, Willie, I want to ask you, uh, what are some of the projects that you're currently working on that you can share with us? You know, short of violating an NDA or anything, is there anything that's coming out of the Willie Myco camp that you can share with us that we can look forward to on the horizon? We're going to have a weekly show that's going to be pretty big. The studio is being built up right now. We're actually moving our operation location from mainland U.S. to a Caribbean island at the current point. So all my operations, my lab, everything will be on this Caribbean island. It's just that I wanna be closer to the family and things like that. So that's why we're gonna be doing that. And, you know, we have plans now that COVID has subsided. Uh, we got 10 episodes of the web series that we're currently shooting. We're also speaking with Vice about something else that I can't really talk about right now, but you might see a collaboration between somebody that's very well known on Vice in the psychedelic world and Willie Michael doing something really cool if we could get it to work out. So that's some of the, the things that are going on right now. Just hired on a couple new people. I got a cannabis grow operation, um, the largest one on the island of Puerto Rico that's actually being built right now. I'm very excited about it. Um, we're going to be able to hire a lot of locals and train them and pay them really good wages and you know teach them a craft that they could take throughout their life and um which i'm really really excited about i'm excited about giving back to the people over there and paying them two times the minimum wage and and teaching them something that they don't need to go to school for that that will make them valuable to the market over there you know a lot of people ask me about the mask I, the reason why i started wearing a mask wasn't because it really started because i worked for this pharmaceutical company and I just didn't want my identity to get out there because of that. But then it be, kind of became who I was. And then I realized I liked it because I'm not an egotistical person. I, I don't care. I don't want people to look at me and say, Willie Michael, 
I want people to think about the information and think about what I'm putting out there. Don't I tell people all the time, fuck me. Don't don't think about me. I'm just a voice. Think about the information I'm putting out there. That's what's really important. So that's really what it is. It's not even anonymity. It's not that I'm trying to 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 you know hide myself behind a mask. It's not that. It's just I don't want to be recognized for what I do. I just want you to recognize the work and and what I'm doing. That's the most important thing. So you know, I'm really excited um, about some of these different opportunities that are that are coming along this year that is coming up. Um, it's it's going to be a great year. I'm really excited. Well, I'm super excited that you joined us on the Micopreneur podcast. I'm truly honored. Please continue this amazing trajectory that you're on. And we can't wait to share all of the future prosperity with you as you continue to, you know, keep scaling what you're doing and keep getting better, keep learning more and keep sharing it with the community. So thank you for everything you do, Willie Michael. And thanks for joining us today. No, thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. Just real quick, shout out to my trip team family. And as always, do good, be good, live good. Namaste. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, micopreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.